This is Muslim in Plain Sight. I'm Anissa Khalifa. And I'm Khadija Khalil. Join us as we look back at 20 years of the war on terror and how our world changed as we came of age. Just some housekeeping before we get into the main episode. We wanted to let you all know about our release schedule. We're going to be releasing every two weeks on Mondays for as long as this goes. And we also wanted to ask you for something, listeners, and I will let Khadija introduce that. Hi, everyone. So we spoke in our first episode about how we wanted to create a record and that one of the aims of our project is that we'll be leaving our own little mark on history, inshallah. But we also want to make you part of that. We know that there are so many people with so many different stories that we will never be able to grab people and sit them down for. So we want to invite you to be a part of this project and leave your own mark on this record, whether that's a reflection on the day itself or your experiences after that, or any reflections that you've had while listening to our guests, as we do. We have lots of thoughts and we also will come back with extra episodes of our own reflections and we hope to share both yours and ours in those inshallah. So do email us and do send us voice notes to muslimandplainsight at gmail.com. Yes, we want this to be a conversation not just between the two of us and the two of us with our guests, but also with listeners. And like Khadija said, it's not, I mean, we cannot encapsulate the multiplicity of all the stories, obviously, but it would be really nice to bring in more voices. On that note, we'll get into our episode. This was a really amazing interview. We really enjoyed it with Zahra Bilu, who is the executive director of CARE San Francisco. Um, and she's had some really great insights to share about her college experience, how her activism grew after 9-11, her career, how she used her faith as sort of a grounding point for her, her service. And she dropped lots of mics about, you know, solidarity and identity and like what it means to be a, an active person in the world trying to make it a better place, even while you're under a lot of backlash and a lot of, you know, things that Muslim women face when they're in the public eye. So it was a really amazing conversation. And we hope that you enjoy it as much as we did. Yeah, I'm gonna go and pick up all those mics now. This is Khadija. And we're very blessed and honored to have um, Zahra Bilu with us today. Assalamualaikum, Zahra. Waalaikumsalam. It's so nice to meet you both and happy to be here. Jazakallah for joining us. Yes, we're so thankful and excited. So for our listeners who might be unfamiliar with Zahra's work, um, she's a civil rights lawyer who serves as the executive director of the Council on American Islamic Relations, San Francisco Bay Area. And it's one of the oldest and largest CARE chapter offices. And since she joined in 2009, CARE has grown sixfold under her leadership. And today she manages one of the largest CARE offices in the country with a team of civil rights and social justice advocates dedicated to the empowerment of American Muslims through legal services, legislative advocacy, and community organizing. She earned her undergraduate from California State University, Long Beach, and her Juris Doctor from the University of California, Hastings. And on a personal note, like I've been following your work for a long time, and I'm like really excited to finally meet you. You're so kind. Um, I'm honored and humbled to have had, you know, the misfortune and fortune of getting to do what I do. It's not a life I think people choose intentionally, but mm. it's one that Allah chooses for us. So that's actually a really great segue on the first question that we wanted to ask, which is that you've been at CARE for 12 years. Did you always want to be a lawyer? And is this the kind of work that you want to do as a lawyer? <laughs> um, so when I was growing up, my options were doctor, uh, as is true for a lot a lot of people in our communities and culture, um, engineer, and then business person. But I was like, I was bored of, of math often. I, I do have a business degree. And for doctor, like I claimed a religious exemption from the dissections that we do in high school biology class. 
And people were like, what is wrong with her? Like, it's not actually against our religion, but I was like, no, that's so gross. I can't do it. Like, there's no way God would want me to do this. Um, Which, you know, segues to like my family and everyone just being like, you're so argumentative and you just talk so much. Maybe you should be a lawyer. And so I was shepherded into a legal career simply because I run my mouth so much. But I don't, I didn't always want to do what I do. I just knew that I wanted to be a lawyer. I'd seen them on TV. I knew that they went to court. They had big fancy offices. It was 9-11 that had the impact of, you know, helping me focus my my goal. And still my goal was to help people. It wasn't necessarily to work in the Muslim community or to work at a Muslim organization. And there was and there still is a lot of stigma around that. And so I could not have seen myself developing a professional career inside our community. My hope was that I would go out into the world and I'd be a visible Muslim, a practicing Muslim. And by helping people outside of our community, I might have an impact on the impressions they had of Islam and Muslims. The opportunity at CARE honestly just fell into my lap. Um, I graduated in 2009. It was a recession. I needed a job. My student loan payments were going to come due and I didn't want to pay interest. And CARE was looking for a director. I was happy to take any job I could get, frankly. But, you know, they say that like Allah's, Allah's plan is is the most important part of this. Yeah. And so I landed at CARE because this is where opportunity brought me. This is what I needed. And I have loved most every day of the last uh, 12 years. Yeah. And I think we will probably come to the difficult parts of that as we continue this conversation. But in this moment, I hope you're ready to sort of take a trip back into time (laughs) because I want to take you back to 2001 to the 10th of September. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about like who was Zahra in 2001, the day before? 9-11. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was a freshman in college. I was just 17. I have an October birthday, so I was a little bit younger than my peers. I was commuting to college from my parents' home. I'd been less than a month that we were in session, if I recall correctly. And I was just getting my bearings around a large public university campus being, uh, for the first time, not the only visible Muslim woman on campus. At my high school, I was the only visible Muslim woman. I was trying to figure out my classes. I knew I wanted to do well. I was, what is the phrase, bright-eyed and Um, bushy-tailed? I was that. Um, And really my whole future lay ahead of me. I was carefree in in a lot of ways, right? I was the daughter of immigrants who'd worked really hard to create opportunities for me. I had not faced or experienced significant Islamophobia, and I was beginning this new chapter in my life um, as just a young American college student. Yeah. I was on campus on September 10th. I don't remember what classes I had, but I do know that I was on campus that day because I was not on campus the next day. Yeah. And then, you know, we all kind of have often shared stories about the day of 9-11 and like what you always kind of say, like, oh, where were you when you found out? And I think that moment of like shock and horror and grief is pretty universal. Right. You know, we talked about that on our first episode, which is going to release, inshallah, before this one. And it wasn't until a little bit of time passed that some of us realized that this was going to have a really different impact on us than it was going to for like the vast majority of Americans. Like I also, I was 15. I was a junior in high school. I was also the the only visible Muslim on campus um, in my high school. So I wanted to ask you, like, can you tell us about the moment that you realized that 9-11 would mean something different for you than for people who are not, you know, either Muslim or perceived as being Muslim? I would say I realized immediately it was a simultaneous experience. On the morning of September 11th, I was at home and I remember my dad called the house, the landline. <laughs> I don't know if anyone still has those, but he called the landline and it was really early and the ringing woke me up and, you know, he's like asking where I am, how I am. And the where I am really struck me and it still stands out to me because like, you called the landline dad. I'm, I'm at home. Um, and he's asking where my mom is and I don't know. I mean, she must be in the restroom or something. And he says, okay, turn on the TV, um, something is happening, uh, stay indoors today. And so it's simultaneous to the experience of 9-11 as an American and then the experience of 9-11 as an American Muslim. And watching the attack unfold and knowing immediately that I needed to stay indoors, shelter in, in place and not be visible today for fear of what would come. There was no delay in, in that understanding. Oh, wow. It is how I experienced 9-11 and we stayed home that day, right? We, we didn't leave the house 
And that was the reason that you weren't on campus the next day then? No, so sorry. So I was on campus on the 10th. I was not on campus on the 11th. And then on the 12th, I did have to go back to campus for class. So it's on the 11th that I was at home. And leaving again on the 12th was, you know, was challenging. I remember wondering, the very vivid memory I have is of like what hijab I wore. And it was a blue and white one um, with like pink flowers. And I get to campus and I'm thinking, was I supposed to wear black? Like, do I need to communicate mm-hmm. to everyone that I too am mourning? Though in California, I mean, and I think on the East Coast, people may have been wearing black in mourning the next day, but that wasn't the case in California. I just felt this like added responsibility of, well, I'm a Muslim. Do I need to, do I need to show them that I'm on their side or that I wasn't associated with what yeah. happened? Um, should I have worn these colors today? It's so interesting that you say this that way, because like, 9-11 onwards, I basically stopped wearing all black mm. because I felt that that image of a Muslim woman in black was the mm. one that people found threatening. Right. So ever since then, li- like pretty much there has not been a day that I have worn all black. Wow. Whereas I used to, you know, you're right. young. You, I was also 17 yeah. at that time. Black was my uniform, right? right. You're always wearing black, especially as a student and, right. you know, all of the attendant reasons. But you make a conscious choice and a, like a decision with that understanding that actually there's an image that I'm not allowed to show anymore because I have to think about whether I appear threatening to other people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm interested that for you that it's actually a completely different way of, of viewing that. Just for that day, I think, just for that day and the days that followed, But yes, since then, we've definitely had the like feedback of like, okay, you need to wear more bright colors. Okay, you need to wear lighter Mm -hmm. colors. Okay, you need to smile Mm -hmm. more. Um, Oh, yeah. Smile (laughs) more. It's like we're talking about something serious. Like, I I don't know how I'm supposed to Mm -hmm. smile in this moment. But yeah, on that day, I remember wondering if I should if I should wear black for morning. But I have also, yeah, I know a lot of people that stopped wearing black or like that wear it less now as a result of mm-hmm. of that entire time. Yeah. I also hadn't thought about the fact that for you, because of the time zone, yeah. it's something that you kind of were woken yeah. up by rather than, you know, oh, I was in the middle true. of a, an exam. Mm-hmm. I was in English class and there was like a weird announcement on the on the PA saying like, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. And I was just like, what is happening? (laughs) And so literally, we just walked into our next class and it was on all the televisions, right? Because for us, it was like, I think 845 or 945, whatever. Okay. So yeah, it's, it's a totally different experience in the sense that like, you don't, you're already out in the world, right? Like the world is all there in your face. Right. So no, on the West Coast, it woke us up. I mean, and the thing about it for me is because I had like, I think I was in class Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And so this is the first time in my life that I get to sleep in on a weekday. Mm. And so to wake up to this news, yeah, it's like you're processing while you're still coming into consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. So having gone through that whole experience, what can you say about like what your Muslim identity meant to you? Like, how did you conceive of it then? Mm. And were you solid in it? And how did that change? Mm -hmm sort of from pre 9-11 to post? I consider myself really, I think just really, really fortunate or, or blessed to have had a solid like Islamic upbringing and one that for the most part has had me pretty consistently on good terms with my faith. Um, we grew up in a home that was middle class. And so my parents, you know, we didn't have the money to fly home to visit Pakistan. I think as often as maybe other families did, like in my, in 37 years, I've been three times. And so my parents, as a result of that, and I think also intentionally chose to really invest in our Islamic identity. And what that meant was that we went to the masjid, like I kid you not, six days a week. Um, It was like Monday through Thursday was Quran class. Friday was like a community event. Um, Saturdays, if we didn't go Fridays, and then Sunday was Sunday school. So we went a lot. We went to Sunday school and we taught in Sunday school. We were in Quran class for as long as was possible. And among the very few international trips that we took as young people, Hajj was one of them. And so my parents took us on Hajj in 1991. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was our first time leaving North America. Wow. Yeah, I was oh, wow. seven and my brother was five. Amazing. And so it's like a part of our upbringing. And then in 2003, again, we went on Umrah. So our, even our trips to Pakistan were tied to Hajj or Umrah. And then in 2006, yeah. my parents took us on Hajj again. And that's after 9-11. But just to you know, give you a sense of how much they invested in our Islamic identity in terms of like, obviously, the cost of doing things mm-hmm. like that but also um, yeah. the time and energy, right? Of like, they would come home, like my dad would come home from work and then, you know, we'd all go to the masjid together every night. And so... And also that's where your community was, right? So that's that where my community been... was. 
Yeah, that's where my friends were. Like even today, like my if I like my core, my oldest, longest friends, they're from that time in my life. And even if I don't talk to them on a regular basis, like we have this like longstanding connection. And all of us were in, you know, neighboring schools where we were the only Muslims. And so mm. we would come together to be Muslim together. But it's, you know, it's where I learned everything. What city was this in? This is in the masjid is in San Gabriel, California. And you know, it's like surrounded by a number of little cities where, yeah, people would just converge. Pre 9-11, though, I would say that I didn't understand politics as a part of my faith um, necessarily, right? Like my faith was pray, give charity, be involved in the community, go on Hajj, read Quran, memorize Quran, things like that. Post 9-11, that's what changed. It's not that my faith was shaken or deepened necessarily. It's that my perspective on my faith was broadened. And I came to understand advocacy and social justice work as part of my faith practice, specifically to say that like it's not enough to just pray five times a day. But in addition to that, which is the bare minimum, I also need to like be involved in my community and like be at the protest and speak out for Islam and Muslims and learn more about my faith and history. And that's what it meant to be Muslim. So that's what changed, not my relationship with my faith, but how my faith then related to other things. Did you find that in school that you had to take that kind of ambassadorial role, but also a kind of a defense lawyer role about being Muslim? Like, did you have to face those challenges? All of the things. (laughs) (laughs) All of the things. I mean, like, we had a small Muslim student association that was, alhamdulillah, like people were committed to it, but it was it was small. And a lot of the people in it at that time were international students whose own circumstances changed after 9-11 as, you know, their families in some cases were calling them back and saying, you know, we don't, we worry about you staying in the United States, but also if they were staying in the United States, they were being targeted by law enforcement and, and harassed and so on. And so I found that I was doing a lot of things. I mean, I was coming into leadership in the Muslim Student Association under like the mentorship of elders who were in the organization. And I was speaking out about Islam in classes and at events. I was advocating for Muslim students to campus leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were really fortunate to have good campus leadership. I've used the word fortunate a lot today. And I think it's just because I, you know, this moment is really an opportunity for me to reflect that I could have been impacted in so many more detrimental ways than I was. But, you know, we had really great campus leadership, but we would advocate to them on behalf of the Muslim students. I joined the campus progressives where we were organizing against the Patriot Act and the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. And so I found myself defending Muslims in that regard. And then when there were you know, civil rights violations or hate incidents on campus, we and I often needed to speak out to say, wait, this isn't okay, this can't happen. Mm. And so all of a sudden, I was wearing a lot of different hats as a as a Muslim woman on campus. It seems like your pre 9-11 life basically prepared you for the rest of your life. Alhamdulillah. Yeah, it's, you know, that's the other interesting thing I've been thinking about is um, at this point, I have spent more years in my life post 9-11 than, than pre 9-11, right? That shift happened a couple of years ago. At 37, it's like 20, 17 on one side and 20 on the other. Mm. But I do think that having very solid grounding in our faith and comfort with my Muslim identity, mm. being encouraged to be vocal and argumentative and unapologetic, and then also just where I was and how privileged I was to not be worried about deportation or finances or a number of other things in that in that moment all made it possible for me to do what I did then and then to continue to do it for for the years to come. Yeah, that's really sobering to think that we've spent more of our lives post 9-11, you know, just I don't know why it didn't strike me until a few weeks ago that, oh, my gosh, it's really been 20 years. Yeah, that's really big. Right. But you mentioned the Patriot Act. And one of the things that we want to do on this podcast as, you know, Khadija's in the UK, I'm here in the US and we've had different experiences. And, you know, like with what's happened, the rise of Islamophobia in the UK has kind of had its own flavors. Mm -hmm. But could you explain for people who might not have been directly affected by it? Or I feel like even Americans who were not part of the sort of targeted populations don't really know Mm -hmm. what exactly the implications of the Patriot Act were. For us as a country. Oh. Would you mind explaining a little bit about that? I know it's like a really big topic, but no, it's okay. I mean, it's I think one of the things that we've seen that's pretty consistent in US history is that we are 
quick to scapegoat. And we don't even need to look at history, right? Like we look at like how the conversation around the coronavirus has been right now, where we are scapegoating Asian Americans, right? And spreading conspiracy theories about how and where the virus was created and what it was intended for. So we're very, very quick to scapegoat. We move very quickly to security measures and we, you know, do them in very broad sweeping strokes. So we did this with Japanese Americans during World War II when we rounded up over 100,000 of them and sent them to effectively American concentration camps. And then I think the last thing is that when the government takes power, it very rarely gives it back or concedes it, right? So it's not like we have this default, even right now, and again, looking at the coronavirus, where it's like, well, the government needs to do X, Y, and Z to keep us safe. But when we let that happen, it's not like when the crisis is over, they give their power back, right? And so I've thought about this a lot in the context of COVID to be like, if we would all just voluntarily get vaccinated, we wouldn't be inching towards a moment in which the government may require it of everyone. Because I don't want the government to require it of everyone because it means that they can more easily require the next thing of everyone and the next thing and the next thing, right? And so post 9-11, you know, one of my best memories is that the Japanese American community immediately stepped forward and said, we know what happens now and we are going to stand with you to protect you against that, to be your allies in this and to remind our fellow Americans of not letting history repeat itself. Yeah, I had no idea of that. Yeah, they were, I mean, because right, they lived through it. And so, and actually now, 20 years later, there are fewer and fewer people who lived the World War II experience. But post 9-11, there were Japanese Americans who had been born in concentration camps who could actually attest to that personal experience. And on the West Coast in particular, by the way, because the Japanese American population was mostly concentrated in the Western United States, like the experience of World War II and and the camps in particular, the relocation, the incarceration and so on is very, very like resonant here. And so they stepped forward and they said, you know, immediately no. What we saw, of course, very quickly was FBI visits uh, and other types of law enforcement visits and targeting of Arab and Muslim men across the country. We saw special registration, right? So men who were from 24 Muslim majority countries and Cuba were required to go into government buildings and register their presence. My dad was on that list. Your dad, subhanAllah. Mm, Yeah. Right. And it's like, I don't, you were, you're younger than me, but I don't, maybe you remember the fear of what he was going in because people weren't coming out in all cases, right? Like we, yeah, we started getting phone calls that people's mm. family members were just disappearing, you Mm -hmm. know, like family friends of ours whose dads just got, Mm -hmm. just the FBI just came to their door one day and then they just didn't tell them where, where they were taking him. And they just didn't hear from him after that, you know. We heard those stories here as well about what was happening to you in the States. Right. It was terrifying. It wasn't happening in Europe, right? In the same way? Not in the same way. Not until in the UK, not until London had their own bombings in 2005. So changed a bit for us then. Yeah. Like, that's the thing, right? All of that's happening. And then there's hate crimes, right? And the first people killed in hate crimes were um, South Asians and particularly Sikh Americans who were not even Muslim. So in that backdrop, Congress passes the Patriot Act, right? Which is like this very broad legislation that attempts to, well... You know, it's it's a it's a funny name. Like it makes you you want to support anything that makes you be a patriot. It wants to keep us safe. It wants to help us secure our country. But what it in fact does is it increases our government's ability to spy on us. It's funny because I've talked about the Patriot Act a lot in the last twenty years, and I was like, okay, how how do I condense it into something that's like digestible? And so I was searching, and the ACLU's got a, a great summary, right? So it allowed the government to look at our records um, that were held by third parties, right? So phone companies, cable companies, car rental companies, all of a sudden the government could go to them and ask for our records. This one always gets me. It allowed the government uh, to do secret searches. So ordinarily, if they come to your house and they want to search the house, they have to tell you. This enabled them to come to your house when you're not there, take a look around and leave and you would never know. We used to call, uh, they were called, uh, what is it? Sneak and peek warrants. So like you literally sneak in, you take a peek around and you leave and, and the homeowner never knows. And what that did, by the way, is it increased so much paranoia in the community, right? Because now you never know if they, they looked or they didn't and what's going on. It also allowed intelligence searches. So it's like it gave the government just really broad sweeping rights to broad sweeping power to come in and look at our information for the purposes of simply gathering intelligence. And a lot of times the way those kinds of warrants were given out, you didn't even know. You didn't have the opportunity to confront the government and say, Mm -hmm. hey, wait a second, this isn't okay." So they could find stuff in a search and use it against you. And you would never even be able to confront why they did the search to begin with. And then they could look at 
the origin of your communications, which is like just this other thing about like where you're communicating from and how you're communicating. All that to say, like it gave the government these really broad, expansive, unchecked powers to collect limitless information about everyone. And by everyone, I really mean mostly American Muslims Mm -hmm. and people from uh, Muslim majority countries. What we understand about the legislation is that it was passed almost overnight. Most members of Congress right, hadn't even read it. Um, But it's not like it was written overnight. It was like in the ready. And then it just needed a crisis to to move forward. And then it was renewed over and over and over again. And there's been a lot of focus on the Patriot Act. And there was a lot of incredible mobilization against it. I remember one of my favorite opposition sources was librarians. Because the librarians were like, hey, wait a second. You can't come in here and look at their like book records. Like we're not down with that. And so there were librarians organizing across the country for it. But wow, <laughs> it, you know, it passed, it was renewed, it passed, it was renewed. And to what I said about COVID and the expansion of government authorities, they don't give back their power once they've once they've obtained it. And, and we need to be really, really cognizant of, of that is that the more we concede, the more they have. Yeah. And what you said about its name and and it just kind of brings you back to that fever pitch of nationalism that everybody was in right after 9-11 right. where like literally they could have done anything right. in that moment. Right. Congress right. unanimously did so many things that now we're just like, how did this even pass? You know, like how did they just invade Afghanistan without like a second thought? Yeah. And the other thing is like what you said about how once they take power, they don't take it back. You know, like Mm -hmm. at that time, they created the Department of Homeland Security. And I definitely see a direct line between all of the Mm -hmm. all of the civil rights that we took for granted back then, just being like completely overtaken by all of this legislation, which has not only been used against us, but also against like black communities and undocumented people. And, you know, like we we didn't have ICE before DHS. Right. Um, And now people talk about it like it's always existed and it's always been there. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, I would say among the among the things that I've come to realize post 9-11, especially as the daughter of immigrants, is that a lot of what Arabs, Muslims and South Asians experience today has gone on for so long in our country's history. It's foundational to our country. I constantly check myself when I say, oh, the system is broken. It's like, no, the system is working exactly as it was supposed to. 100 percent. Yeah. Right. Like, but we weren't. And I speak for my family and I think like families like mine, we weren't bothered by what was happening to other communities because it didn't hit home for us. We bought into the narrative of if you don't do anything bad, you won't get in trouble, mm-hmm. right? We bought into the narrative of the police are good and they're here to help you. It wasn't until we saw innocent South Asians and Arabs being targeted that we could understand. And it's unfortunate that it wasn't until we saw that that we could understand what was wrong for, for so long. Because though DHS and ICE are new, and I agree, people treat them like they're the Holy Grail and they've been here forever and they freak out when we say abolish ICE. The tactics that are used against our community have long existed, right? Destabilizing other countries. We've done that all over Latin America. Yes. Um, racial profiling. We've done that to black and brown people for forever since since Europeans arrived here. Right. Yes. Uh, scapegoating entire peoples. We've done that. And so I would say one of my experiential learnings post 9-11 was to say, you know, we need to care about these things when they happen to anyone and not just us. Mm-hmm. So what did that do, witnessing that in such an immediate way? What did that do to your sense of belonging as an American, not just like an American citizen, but as a person who identifies with an identity as an American? Um, sometimes I get, <laughs> I've had friends be like, don't say you got radicalized, but I did. I, I became um, more radical in my commitment to my faith and in my commitment to my activism. It is when I came of age as an American Muslim. For me, leaving the faith wasn't an option. Alhamdulillah, like I was content and grounded in my faith. And leaving the country wasn't an option, literally, because I <laughs> where had would you go? go? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. I think that's a question that so many people just arrive at, like people like us yeah. who were born and grew up in in the countries that we did. Like, where right. do we go? I don't speak any other languages. <laughs> no other. I, I mean, at this point, it's even worse because nobody wants Americans, right? Like, there was 
a dating or a matrimonial site to meet Canadians after Trump was elected. And like, I thought, <laughs> I, like I remember hearing that the site crashed That's because hilarious. there were so many Americans trying to like meet and marry a Canadian. You know, and and now with COVID, like when Europe placed a ban on Americans coming in, I was like, oh, okay, I guess my blue passport means nothing now, um, right? Like all the privilege of that is gone. And so, yeah, where would I go? And so, you know, as a result of both of those things, and I think the circumstances that I was witnessing, uh, or the, you know, sort of the fallout that I was witnessing, I have often said that I, I came of age as an American and as a Muslim. Like it's, I said earlier that it didn't shake my faith. If anything, I would say it deepened it because I had to learn it. I had to speak about it. I had to practice it. I was already wearing a headscarf at the time. So it's like, I need to be sure about this. Um, and the same is true for my American identity. I was approaching voting age. I had the privilege of being a U.S. citizen without fear of deportation. I had um, the financial stability of of my family and, and their support. And so everything I'd ever read about protest movements or civil disobedience or the First Amendment all hit home for me as this is this is my time to do those things. And so how do you navigate between speaking to our community, to other Muslims, mm. versus speaking outside of that community, to the mainstream, to non-Muslims, to different communities? You know, it's not a, I don't think that it's like two audiences. I think it's like dozens, if not hundreds of different audiences, right? So when we're talking about the Muslim community, there's recent immigrants, there's first, second, and third generation immigrants, there's religious people and non-religious mm -hmm. people, there's different socioeconomic status, different views on gender and education, different political views even, right? Like there are Muslims who still identify as Republican and that was very normal 20, 25 years ago, but you know, they, they're smaller today, but they exist. There are Muslims who I think carry sometimes internalized Islamophobia. There are Muslims whose cultural practices have changed as a result of coming here. And then others who are working really hard to maintain their cultural identities. And that's just like a fraction, right? Then there's black Muslims and we, we don't spend enough time thinking about them as a very important segment of our community and a very large segment of our community. And speaking to black Muslims is going to be very different than speaking to recently arriving refugees. And then outside of the Muslim community, it's the same thing, right? Is that a lot of times when I think when I say mainstream Muslims or mainstream Americans, or, you know, we say it as organizations or institutions, we're talking about white Americans, but they are not the only Americans I need to speak to or the only you know people of other faiths I need to speak to. It's a different conversation with, with undocumented uh, individuals in the United States. It's a different conversation with black individuals in the United States, the LGBTQ community, young people, old people. Like, it's so many different audiences. And so I don't think I'm necessarily switching on and off or adapting between Muslims and people who are not Muslim. It's that I have to adapt for every audience that I speak to. And some are going to be more receptive than others. Some will require more work. Some are not willing to listen. Mm. And so, you know, it's challenging because I come to this work with my personal views and my personal politics and my personal experiences. And then I have to try to fit that into what is the right messaging for me at CARE. Right. What is the right messaging for this organization? Because there's a difference between when I say something and when CARE says something. And then I have to you know, adapt that again to like, who am I speaking to? Am I speaking to police officers? Am I speaking to politicians? Am I speaking to community organizers who are advocating for defunding the police and abolishing ICE? And so it can be exhausting. But I think one of the things that makes it possible is that in the end, the messaging is the same or the content and the substance are the same. It's that the framing may shift, right? Like the tone of voice may shift, the medium may shift, but the content and the substance are the same and have to be the same because otherwise I think it gets back its challenges mm -hmm. to be like, are we saying different things to different people? No, we're saying the same thing differently to different people. Mm -hmm. So how easy or difficult is it to maintain that sort of consistent through line in your messaging and of course in your behavior and your actions? Um, I don't generally find it difficult. I sort of appreciate the responsibility because it keeps me honest and it keeps me consistent, right? I, um, you know, separate from even like the political conversation in the experience as a visible um, leader or quote unquote leader in our community, I'm often coming up across the question of like, how do we ensure that our private lives are consistent with our public lives, right? And so I I think that the responsibility keeps us honest. The obligation keeps us 
steady. And if the thought of Allah holding us accountable is not sufficient to keep us on our best behavior, the thought of the people holding us accountable definitely adds to that. That said, I think that maybe another way that I experience this in a sort of as a challenge is that our positions and our perspectives continue to evolve as we learn and grow. And that's true for me as an individual, that's true for our organization, and that's true for the community. The way, for example, we think about our relationship with the U.S. government and law enforcement and surveillance has shifted so much in the last 20 years. Um, I will always remember this one time I was giving a Know Your Rights presentation um, at a masjid and, you know, telling people that if you're approached by the FBI, assert your right to remain silent, assert your right to an attorney and then call care because we will provide the attorneys for free. I'm an attorney. You can call me anytime. I'm doing this whole thing. And at the end of it, a man came up to me and alhamdulillah, he didn't ask this in the Q&A. He came up to me and asked me personally. He said, you know, I was here several years ago and one of your predecessors told us that we should trust the FBI and that we should let them into our house and we should answer their questions. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that was right. Like that was what was happening for just a short period of time post 9-11, where it was like, well, if we have nothing to hide, then let's prove our loyalty and our patriotism by talking to them. And that shifted as we learned more, right, as we experienced Mm -hmm. more. And I think we continue to see that on a number of issues in terms of like our perspective on interactions with the police. Um, our perspective on voting, right? So many, many years ago, this wasn't a position that CARE took, but it was a position in the community that voting is haram. And people have moved and shifted and changed from that position, but it takes time. And so for me, I think we have to be compassionate with ourselves and with each other, which is to say, we're still learning. And if we ever think that we're done learning, then that is in and of itself a problem. We should consistently be curious to say like, okay, what am I saying? How am I saying it? And can, can it be done better? And then we should be forgiving. Just because I don't agree with someone today doesn't mean that they're necessarily wrong or ill-intentioned, right? It could be that they are further ahead of me on the learning curve or behind me on the learning curve, but that it is a, a learning curve and one that is ongoing. And I mean, you talked about how your relationship to this, the structures of power have changed and sort of the messaging has changed. But do you feel like on the other side, anything has changed? Has there been any progress in terms of policy or law or, you know, are things getting worse? Um, I like how that's not an open question. I think that when it comes to policy and law, I do worry that things are getting worse, that much of what the government has usurped in terms of power, authority, and also its actions in terms of imperialism. And, you know, we're reminded of this now with like the so-called withdrawal from Afghanistan that leaves the country in shambles without reparations for what we've done, without a, yeah. an adequate exit plan, and then continues to have us drone bombing, by the way, right? Like, it's like, how is it that we are exiting, but then we're still drone bombing? And I get it, we're drone bombing ISIS and not the Taliban, but like, why were we there to begin with? Like, on all of those fronts, I worry that, you know, it is getting worse. You know, we have a military presence in far more Muslim majority countries today than we did 20 and 25 years ago. Um, the government has far more sweeping authority on surveillance and has used that to target and intimidate and imprison and punish Muslims and, of course, many others. So whenever we talk about these problems, it's never just about Muslims. On the flip side, the community has grown and it continues to grow. And, you know, we have more Muslims in elected office right now. We have more Muslims on television. We have more Muslims in Hollywood. We have, in some ways, much stronger Muslim institutions than than we did 20 and 25 years ago. I look at Just Care, for example, pre-9-11, there were eight chapters. And today there's over two dozen. Mm, mashallah. And so I think things have gotten better while they've also gotten worse. Um, and it's sad that we need this much more community power but I think that it's silver lining of everything that's happened is we're saying enough is enough. We are going to take control of, of fighting for ourselves. Yeah, that's well said. Not as just depressing as I was <laughs> expecting. So thank you for that. <laughs> Things are horrible right now. The world is ending. But um, we know that anyways, right? And I don't know. This is where I'm going to come back to our faith. Where I'm like, well, right. we know the world is supposed to end. So, like, so true. Okay. <laughs> it's ending. What are we going to do It's about funny it? that yeah. that's the consolation we all give each other. You know what? Like, Guillermo is coming. So, of course, yes. it's going to be like this. Of course, yes. the world is literally on fire. Of yes. course, yeah. you know, like, yeah. Dajjal has to come somehow, right? Yes. Well, and I'm in California, so it is literally on fire. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you all know how bad the fire yes. is here, but it's, it's so bad. We've just been watching and just in horror and just praying yeah. for all of you. Yeah, it's really... I was talking to um, 
someone uh, who works in local news here yesterday, and they were telling me that they're using um, the snow making machines to fight the fires. Oh and so it's gosh. just like ridiculous like thing when you think about it. It's like, okay, so we have these ski resorts that don't have enough snow on their own because of global global warming. Mm-hmm. So then we make fake snow. But now there are these like massive fires. And so we use the fake snow machines to fight the massive fires. It's like, I don't know, it's just it's like a climate change. It's that what do you like those pick your own pick your adventure like right. storybooks? Like, that's what it is. But, yeah. Climate change. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. Pick your own climate disaster. Right. And then and then like you said, but you still come back to, you know, what our faith teaches us about, like, even if right. it's the day of judgment and you're planting a tree, you still continue so to plant that tree. Right. right. So like right. we have that legacy of like service, no matter what, right. you know, to the people exactly. around you yeah. and finishing your work. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. So could you share like a memorable experience with us, maybe like a victory that you had that really stays with you or, uh, you know, like a moment of crisis that really shaped you that you could share? There's a lot. Can I tell you two? Sure, of course. Tell us ten. I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) So one of them is a, I think it's a funny story for me. Um, It's, so this is like 2010 or 11. And I read a story online about someone who took their car to the mechanic and found, you know, found a a GPS tracking device on the car. Um, Like they literally looked under the car and they like discovered a a little black box and they took it off and, and they were like, what is this? And then they posted pictures of it on Reddit and all of the other users on Reddit, like through the serial number and like the whatever else description they had. And looking at the picture, they were like, oh, that's a GPS tracking device. And I was like, this is absurd. Like what? The next day, the FBI shows up at this person's store and they're basically like, hey, like, did you find something in your car? And he was like, yeah. Yeah, I did. And they're like, oh, okay, well, it's ours and we want it back. Oh, my and I, God. Like, every time I say that out loud, <laughs> I'm like, what is that? Enough. Right. Right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, he's like, I think he must have been 20 at the time. And, you know, he's like, what would you do if half a dozen FBI agents showed up at your house and wanted something in it? Like, you'd give it to them, right? I mean, I don't, I'd like to think I wouldn't, but I don't know. I haven't been tested in that way. So I, so I like, I hear about all this. I'm like, this is crazy. Like, this is so, so ridiculous. The next day, someone shows up at our office and he's claiming to be that that man. And he's like, this happened to me. And I remember just being like, "Okay, where is Ashton Kutcher with his like camera? And they're going to be like, oh, you're (laughs) punk. Like, let's see how you react to blah, blah, blah. This is an early 2000s (laughs) reference. I love that you brought that in. (laughs) (laughs) Someone's going to know what this is, right? But like, I was just like, what is going on? And, you know, so he tells me it's him. That's his story. And I'm just like, this is what? And, you know, he needs our help. And so I remember being like, I don't believe it. Like, I read the story and I believed it. But now that it's right here, I don't believe it. <laughs> Turns out the mechanic that found the GPS tracking device was my mechanic. Um, <laughs> and I was just like, this is. And so it was like between like I called the FBI and they like, you know, we're like, oh, yeah, we want to talk to him. And so between that and the fact that the mechanic was my mechanic, I was like, oh, my God. But every time I say like and they asked for it back, like <laughs> it's funny that we're recording audio because they can't see your faces. Um, but yeah, like if, if you could screenshot your face when I said it, that's like the reaction I have gotten to that story for over 10 years now. And so anyways, we we did sue the FBI um, on his behalf. And there was actually an older case, uh, an ACLU case involving a black man where law enforcement actually obtained a warrant to place the tracking device on the car. In our client's case, there was no warrant. And so they obtained the warrant. The warrant expired. And then they got around to placing the tracking device on the car. Oh, so eventually that case went to the Supreme Court and it impacted our case. But in, you know, the Supreme Court in that other case, Jones, the United States said that when you attach something, to someone's vehicle, you are uh, infringing on their Fourth Amendment rights. And so you need a valid search warrant. And so that was that story for me is always just hilarious because of like, I can't believe the nerve of the FBI. And this is before social media was as big as it was. But still, like, you know, Reddit existed. People talked about it. The story went viral. And also that like what was happening to Black and Latinx communities just a few years prior was then coming home to happen to, you know, young mm. Arab American men. And so I hope that our community can do more to be in allyship with other impacted communities. And, you know, I'm using a lot of these words simplistically, by the way. So when I say our community here, I don't mean Muslims, because of course, there are Black and Latinx Muslims. I mean, Arab and South Asian, uh, first and second generation Muslims, who a lot of times were not bothered by other people's struggles in the same way. Yes. Okay, so that's the shocking story. The I think the uplifting one for me is, <sighs> again, 12 years, 12 years at care, but also 20 years in this work. There's a lot of stories. But the other one that I just, I think, really resonate, like really comes home for me is, so in the days following the Muslim ban in 2017, he signed, Donald Trump signs the Muslim ban on Friday, 
and it goes into effect immediately. And the first planes that are impacted are the ones landing at JFK because that's the biggest airport. Most of the international flights come in there. That night, um, a friend who's an attorney in New York called me and said, you know, let me tell you about what happened here so that you're prepared for when the flights land at SFO. The next day, I remember we're like, I'm going protesting. I will always remember this random white woman who found my phone number on the internet and was like, can I organize a protest? And I was like, yeah. She was like, I don't know how to do anything, but I know how to make like a meetup page. And I was like, okay, yeah, right. Um, so between her and the union organizers and um, our Arab and South Asian activists um, and leaders with AROC and Asata, like at least in San Francisco, we had, you know, we had massive protests. Um, they broke records for public transit coming into the airport that day. And so when I got there, um, there were thousands of people and people were protesting and chanting. And there were people, of course, stuck that they were advocating for. A few hours in, people started to get really hungry. And like, I don't know about you all, but like one of the things I don't miss about pre-COVID life is airport food, Mm. Um, except yogurt parfaits. I do really like yogurt parfaits, but like, you know, it's overpriced. It's not so good. um, And you're grateful for food, but like you're paying 20 bucks for something that you might have otherwise paid like five to seven for. Mm. And so these protesters don't necessarily want to buy airport food and they're getting ready to leave. And the protest organizers are saying, hey, like, don't leave. Have your friends who cannot come to the protest DoorDash food to you. Have them drop off food. And all of a sudden the food started to flow. And there was so much food. Like, you know, when we talk about like the baraka and food where it's just not running out, that's what it felt like, where it was like wow. pizza and chips and salad and donuts and cake and cookies and like all these things. And it just kept coming. And everybody ate that night. And I remember I was at the airport the first night till 3 a.m., the next night till midnight. Like we were running on fumes. And yeah, I just remember my phone was ringing off the hook, not just from people locally, but from media, from people internationally who were asking, how do I get in? What do I do? And um, one of the sisters in the communities, you know, checked in with me. She said, have you eaten? And I was like, uh, like I couldn't remember what I had eaten. Mm. And so her and a number of other sisters set up a meal train for our office. And so what they would do is every day a woman in the community would drop off food for the whole staff. And they, you know, they'd like do it on their way home from picking up their kids. They do it in the morning, they do it in the middle of the day. And there was again just so much food. And so for like nearly a month, uh, my whole staff and I like I don't think we thought about what we needed to eat because there was always just food around, um, home cooked food around. Wow. And it's such a fond memory because I think growing up as a wannabe feminist I didn't understand maybe the value and importance of the path that my mom had chosen. My mom has a master's degree in chemistry. She moved to the U.S. by herself in the 70s and and worked to send money to Pakistan. And then when she got married, she was like, "Okay, I don't want to do that anymore. I just want to, you know, not I just want to, but I want to spend all of my time raising my family and taking care of my kids and doing the best that I can to support them. And that included cooking. Right. And I was always like, why'd you choose that? Like, you're wasting your life. Like, what are you doing for the community, et cetera? And I experiencing the love and support of so many moms in our community who wanted to nurture us while we did what we were doing helped me come to terms with the understanding that activism doesn't look just one way and there isn't just one path for us to serve Allah and serve the community, that there are so many, so many paths. And frankly, we need all of them. Mm. Because if we were to be like, oh, well, the lawyers are more important than the people doing the cooking, well, then how are the lawyers going to eat? Right. And if we prioritize the cooking over the lawyers, who's going to do the advocacy? And so we needed that synergy of everyone working together. And so it was really the Muslim ban experience in the days and weeks that followed that I think helped deepen my appreciation for the different things that people do, even when they don't look like what I initially thought was activism. Mm. What a beautiful story. You actually brought me to tears. (laughs) I'm sorry. No, no, it was good tears. Alhamdulillah. You also answered what was going to be our next question in such a oh. beautiful way that we do not need to like cut it down and be like, can you repackage that for us? No, that was <laughs> subhanAllah. That was really, and I mean, like personally, as someone who's also struggling with, you know, mm-hmm. how do you do activism in a way that like, what is meaningful activism? Mm-hmm. Do what makes you happy, right? Like do what makes you happy, do what you can do well. I think the the other pieces of advice I give people are like, ask yourself, what is my privilege? And how do I like push the limits of, of my privilege, right? If my privilege is that I can afford to feed people, right? Or I have time to cook, then that's what I'm going to do. If my privilege is that I have a job um, or a platform or a podcast that enables me to use my voice, like I'm going to use that. And our privileges will will vary. And then the other thing I advise people is it is important to allow ourselves to be pushed at least slightly to discomfort. And what I mean by that is the obligation to serve Allah by serving his creation is not 
something that we should just do when we have spare time, right? It may mean I get 30 minutes less of sleep. It may mean that I don't take the vacation I want to take. It may mean that I have to take sometimes safety risks. Like the the discomfort will look different for different people. But if we look to the traditions of our prophet, peace be upon him, as well as um, his blessed companions, they were not comfortable in the way that we are comfortable, right? Like yeah. maybe they had more money in some cases. Maybe some of them were richer. Maybe some of them um, had better health. Maybe some of them had more supportive families. So they, they had comforts, but they were not comfortable. And whenever they were asked to give or work or do, they did. And they did so without hesitation, right? So I, I often think about, um, you know, how many people left their families to go to, go to battle? And how many of us are like, oh, I, you know, I just, I need the whole weekend with my family. And it's like, okay, but like, could you give two hours to the local masjid? Could you give three hours to the local masjid? They gave so much money. Like we give, we always give from our spare money. Like we never, not we never, but I know that even when I give charity, right? Like there's a budget for that. I'm not sacrificing very much of my daily luxuries or comforts for the charity that I'm giving. But when we look to our traditions, that is tradition, right? Is that that's where there is the most blessing is when I make sacrifice, but sacrifice is not easy. That's why it's it's so important. Yeah. But it can be different things. You can be an engineer, right? And you can be inside Amazon advocating against like facial recognition technology. You could be a doctor serving low-income communities. You can be a full-time mom that, you know, volunteers at, at Sunday school or is raising, you know, kids who are doing service in the community. So there's lots of ways. Um, there isn't a single path. Um, and in fact, we need everyone. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I want to ask. So a couple years ago, you were on the board for the Women's March. And I remember you basically getting kicked out because you were advocating for Palestinians. And from the outside, I mean, obviously, I wasn't privy to all of the details. But like looking at it from the view of someone who's just an observer, it really looked like the way that liberal spaces often use visibly Muslim women for diversity, but then discard us when they realize that we actually have something to say that might not fit in with, you know, their narrative and like their uh, agenda or like their view of the country and what they are willing to stand up for. So I guess as somebody who wants to work in coalition with other organizations in my own local community and is kind of like navigating how to do that best, how can we benefit from the broader platform that that gives us without being like co-opted by these organizations for kind of their own optics or their own goals and stay true to our own principles? Yeah. I think it's really important to to be aware of what our principles are, be firm in them and be unwilling to compromise. And I think that's different from, you know, I'm going to navigate these spaces versus Palestine. There's a, a term, right? Uh, perhaps progressive except Palestine. And I think we yes. see that a lot in interfaith spaces. It's why a lot of Muslim leaders and organizers have taken a step back, actually, from traditional interfaith spaces is because there's a lot of like, let's hold hands and talk about how everything's amazing with the Zionists, right? Mm. And it's like, I'm not going to do that. If you are with the Anti-Defamation League, if you're with the Jewish Community Relations Council, if you are advocating against boycott divestment sanctions, if you are parroting right-wing talking points about Palestinian resistance, like, I'm not going to have an interfaith dinner with you. Like, you are not fighting for the same thing that I am fighting for. Will I talk with you? Yes. Will I maybe engage in certain advocacy with you? Yes. But we are not in the same fight. And so we've seen a lot of, you know, a lot of Muslims and a lot of progressives, even progressives that are good on Palestine, take a step back from traditional interfaith spaces and say, I'm not here for that. We've also even seen a lot, alhamdulillah, I think a very important accountability within the Muslim community of other Muslims who are willing to normalize with Zionists, like especially in the last couple of years. There's been a lot of, you know, and I hesitate around like, call out culture, but I think certain things just need to get called out. And there's been a good effort of accountability to say, look, like if you're partnering with the American Jewish committee, if you are going on MLI, like we're going to, we're going to distance ourselves from you. What was hard about the women's March space is that it wasn't a traditional progressive white women's space. It was, you know, the co-founders are, um, are people with incredible politics. My friend and sister, Linda Sarsour, um, Tamika Mallory, Carmen Perez, Bob Bland. And when they transitioned the board, I think they rightfully hoped that this next board, and they vetted this next board. I mean, the, sorry, the elections committee voted this next board to say, like, what are your politics? Who are you? How do, who do you represent? Like, how do we know that you're good on the same issues that we were good on? And I think what surprised me, what surprised them was to see women of color, you know, South Asian women, uh, 
Latinx women, uh, even indigenous women, unwilling, unwilling and frankly, just too afraid to move on the question of Palestine. Um, A lot of people are like, oh, like you got kicked off by white women. I'm like, no, no, no. I got kicked off by women of color. I got kicked off by indigenous women. I got kicked off by Latinx women who had the nerve to say to me, if we're always, always talking about Palestine and defending you on Palestine, when will we have time to fight for reproductive rights? And I remember when that was said to me, I was like, why can't we fight for both? Why is it either or? I remember another one of them saying, well, why don't you take a step back and we pick and we could pick another woman, another Muslim woman in your place? And I was like, so you as an outsider to my community want to assess like if I was who was elected, I was who was elected. If it had been someone else, I would have supported her. But now you want to come in and say that, like, I don't deserve this spot and you're going to pick a more palatable Muslim woman. And the hardest part about all of it was that because many Muslims and many Muslim activists have taken a step back from, you know, so-called progressive or interfaith spaces over time, but did feel like they had found a home in the Women's March, felt betrayed, Mm. right? It wasn't just about me at that point. It was about the message it sent to the community is that we, you know, to your point, we like Muslims, we want Muslims if they fit a certain narrative, if they, you know, can stay within this little box that we have carved out for them. And if they dare step outside, if they dare make us uncomfortable, if they dare, um, if they dare be attacked, right? And I think that was the other interesting thing is I, I think that for a lot of the women who are on the Women's March board in this new iteration, they had never experienced the volatility or the vociferousness of the attacks that Muslim women regularly face. And so what was, you know, just an ordinary afternoon for me of hit pieces is what, it was just a normal day for me, had them spiraling out of control and, you know, and making the decision to remove me. And so a lot of people felt really betrayed and, that I think is the saddest outcome in all of this for me is that we lost trust in yet another space. Mm-hmm. That said, I, I know that there are a growing number of spaces where Muslims can be the, their whole selves, where Muslims are welcome to advocate for all of the issues that they advocate for. And frankly, where people are taking a correct and consistent position on, on Palestine. The Movement for Black Lives is a really good example of this, where they have been consistent in speaking out for Palestine, and they have weathered Zionist attacks from groups like the Anti-Defamation League in response to their consistency, but they have not flailed. They have not wavered. And so my advice to people who are asking, you know, how do I stay consistent? What can I do? Is to say that no no access point or privilege or platform is worth losing a part of yourself over, right? Our success and failure is determined by Allah. So if I'm able to pass legislation, if I am respected, if I'm well recognized, if I can help people, all of that is determined by Allah. What I have control over is whether or not I lose myself in the process. I think one of the most sort of hilarious outcomes of the Women's March debacle is that I'm a fairly well-known member of the, or fairly well-known former member of the Women's March. And so doing what they did, in fact, further elevated my profile in relation to them. And so I remind myself that even our reputation, right, is is determined by Allah. We just have to try our best. And I remember, ah, I remember this, one of the women on the board who was trying to, so essentially what had happened was that they wanted me to resign. And I was like, I'm not resigning over my Palestine commentary. Like, that's not going to happen. And in particular, it's not going to happen because then you win and the Zionists win, right? So the Zionists are like, wow, we forced her to resign. And you're like, look Mm -hmm. at us. Like, we didn't kick her off the board. She chose to take a step back. And I was like, no, no, I am not sure that I want to work with you all anymore. But I'm also not giving you the ease of stepping back. Like, you're going to need to be on the record and accountable for your cowardly actions. And in that context, one of the women says to me, like, but if you resign, it will protect your dignity because you won't have been kicked off the board. You will have the dignity of saying you took a step back. And I remember just being livid when she said that. And I think I said to her, I I said to her, at least I've said it to others since then, my dignity doesn't come from the Women's March board. It doesn't come from care. It doesn't come from my law degree. It comes from Allah. And so how dare you think that you could influence my dignity? And so emerging from that whole debacle with, you know, many, many people holding the Women's March accountable and this like ongoing notoriety of the Women's March 
caved on on Palestine, um, for me, is evidence that in the end, our success and failure is a function of of God's mercy. Subhanallah, mm. it really is. <laughs> oh, I just want to like stand up <laughs> and cheer right now. <laughs> so inspiring. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Put, like you're saying that, and it immediately puts me in mind of that ayah. You know, I'm sorry, I don't remember the Arabic right now, but that they will try to put out the light of Allah like with their mouths, but they can't. That, you know, which I am talking about, right? Yes. Like falsehood by its nature is bound to perish. And yes, the truth remains. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it takes time and oftentimes it's hard, right? But this is why I think being rooted in our faith as we do this work and as we move through life is so important because it's like, it may not, like falsehood may not perish Mm -hmm. tomorrow. Sometimes it does and that's like joyous, but like sometimes it takes, sometimes it takes a long time. But when we trust, Allah's promise, then we know that what's coming will come. Mm, yes, so true. So that was all really heavy, but also subhanAllah, really amazing. And I'm going to be thinking about this for the rest of the week, I think. But to finish off, can you share with us like one thing that you're working on right now that you're excited to share with the world? Yeah, um, I'm gonna, there's a lot. I think that I'll, I'll share two things because I'm terrible at ever just picking one thing. Um, I love this. I love that. Every time we say share one thing, you're like going to give us more. That's like we get a bonus. I'm like, what? I'm like, what? You want me to follow the rules? Um, <laughs> so personally, I am continuing to work to deepen my faith practice. And for me, that means making the time to pray Salat al-Doha when I can. Um, that means that when I, make up, when I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm feeling restless, my normal solution for that is to walk to my refrigerator and eat ice cream. Um, but if I'm conscious enough to say, okay, like, Zahra, can you quickly make wudu and pray to Rakaf Tahajjud? It means remembering that for as much email as I read every day, trying to make time, even if it's just a few minutes, to read Quran every day. And I go through periods where I am so good on all of those fronts. And then I go through periods where I'm not, and maybe I'll get one out of three every few days. But making that commitment to say, that I talk about how I'm doing this work for Allah, but I have to continue to prioritize my relationship with him and remember that my wellness and my success and my sustainability and hopefully the acceptance of my efforts is not just about doing the work and reading the emails, speaking at the events, but it's also about consistently coming back, coming back to him. So that's something that I'm excited about personally, but also that's just personally very important to me. And I hope that your listeners will make the law that I succeed on, on that front. And maybe even join me in those efforts if there are opportunities for them um, to double down on. And then, you know, professionally, the the really important thing for me that I'm excited about, which may or may not be really interesting, but is for me is like, look, I've now been fighting Islamophobia in some way, shape or form and, you know, protecting our community and trying to develop power for 20 years. I've been at CARE for 12. I've gone through Democratic presidents and Republican presidents, multiple wars. And the questions the questions I'm trying to answer, I told you I was going to tell you two things, but be two and three is one, how do we build community power so that we are not just upset about what is happening, but we are taking strategic um, and organized action in response to things, right? And we are doing so in a way that is unafraid, whether that means mobilizing tens of thousands of people for protests or tens of thousands of people to email members of Congress or other elected officials or, you know, to tweet at a media outlet that building that power and just saying like, we need to build lifestyles of action because maybe not everyone is going to work at care full time, but will they go to work, go hang out with their kids and then all write a letter? Will they go to work, hang out with their kids, all tweet at like the local news station and just like really building that like culture of action. That was number two. And then number three is building a pipeline of people. Like I very much benefited from mentors over the last 20 years. Before I started working at CARE in 2009, I interned at CARE in 2004. Mm. And I wasn't even a good intern. Like, I didn't finish my hours. They eventually were like, hey, like, this is clearly not wrapping up. Like, we get that you mean well, but you're also really, really busy. (laughs) And they, you know, but I stayed in relationship with them, even despite being a bad intern. Like, I stayed in relationship with them. Um, I continue to volunteer. Um, Our Los Angeles executive director is my reference when I applied for, for the job that I have today. And you know, we're over the years hiring people that are coming into the workforce. And so how do we continue to build a career so that in the way that 20 years ago, I could not have imagined a career in the Muslim community? How do we make that possible? How do we make that accessible? And frankly, how do we make it sustainable so people can learn and grow and 
serve and pay their bills while they're here. And so I want to make sure that we're continuing to create opportunities for people who want to do this work full time and or people who want to experience parts of it and then take the skills and experiences and serve other parts of the community or have other professions. So there's a lot going on, but I'm, I like to think that I'm still young. I remember when I thought that being 25 was being over the hill and now I'm, <laughs> yeah, right? And, I was like, and now I'm 37, approaching 38 and the countdown to 40 is on. Don't forget um, and- that like in Sunnah terms, your youth is until you're 40. So okay. you haven't even hit your best right, right, right. years no, exactly. yet. <laughs> you do, but your youth is until you're 40. So then after that, it's downhill. No, no, no. After that, you're in your strength and prime. <laughs> um, and I'm joking. <laughs> I know. No, no, of course. Of course. I'm doing that. No, like, no. 100% understand because same thing. Right? Like I was the I was the mean 24-year-old being like, eh, you're so old now, right? To the 25-year-old. And now I'm just like, oh, okay, now I'm approaching 40. But I say that to say, I think with each of these things that I'm excited about, like, you know, just really doubling down on my faith practice, building, uh, as one of my colleagues says, intergenerational community power, and then creating a pipeline for leadership and, and activism in our community to ensure that more and more people can come into the work and stay in the work, I think are all, for me, what are important in, in the long game. And may Allah give you tawfiq in all of those things. Yes. Inshallah. I mean. I mean. I mean. And us. Yes. Everyone. Yes. You, both of you, and, and the important work that you're doing to raise voices um, across continents. Uh, is is what's really exciting about this and to different audiences um, and to everyone who's listening in all of the ways that they are choosing to to be and work and believe, inshallah. Inshallah. Thank you so much for joining us. This was an incredible conversation. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't know how it would go because it's our first interview so far for this podcast. And right. we were like a little nervous. Very nervous. Um, but <laughs> you, guys are, you guys are great and so, so easy to talk to. I I can see why you are experienced podcasters, mashallah. I wish we could just sit down with tea and, you know, biscuits and hear all of your Uh, stories. Yes, yes. One day, one day when the Atlantic Ocean is open to us again. And one day when you have (laughs) time for this. Oh, I'll always have time for tea and biscuits. Oh, oh, no, no, I'll always have time for tea and biscuits. Oh, inshallah. May Allah unite us in this world and in the next. Amin, amin. So where can our listeners find you on social media? I'm on... I'm on all of the platforms that people of my generation use, which is Facebook, <laughs> Facebook, <laughs> and Facebook, Twitter, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. What, I, no TikTok. You know, I don't. I, I do have accounts on Snapchat. No, I have an account on TikTok. I don't know how to use it. Like I can find the cat videos, but I don't know how to do those on TikTok. And so people can find me on Facebook, Twitter. And, and Instagram just using my full name, Zahra Balu. And, and they should also look up, um, especially if people are abroad, then they should look up CARE, that's just C-A-I-R. If they're in the United States, um, I hope they'll connect with their local CARE office in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. That's CARE San Francisco Bay Area. But we have offices across the country and you know it's a good way to stay in touch, get involved and, and be informed. Yes, and I've found CARE to be an amazing resource for all kinds of things. So um, thank you for the work that you do. It's really invaluable. Thank you. And you can find us on Twitter at MipsPod, which is M-I-P-S pod. And you can email us at MuslimInPlainSight at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And you can subscribe to the podcast at MuslimInPlainSight.com. And that's it. Yes. Thank you so much. Assalamu alaikum. Alaykum.